topic of our Dhamma talk today is Sila. And Satna Sila means what? Virtue, morality, yes, or you know, ethical conduct. And so, you know, this is a topic that uh, is not necessarily always popular among meditators. And so, you know, so it's actually not so easy you know, to you know, find, just, oh, thank you very much, to find you know, the right way to present you know, this you know, topic. Now, what we shall do is uh, in a more uh, or in a less certain formal you know, manner you know, than usual, um, you know, so less formal you know, Dhamma talk than you know, usual, you know, we will explore you know, the deeper meaning and uh, different aspects of Vatnasila and Satna in particular in connection with our meditation practice but also in a more general manner. Now you will have surely read or heard once in a while that in the field of athletics doping has taken place. So athletes with an intention to succeed, with an intention to be the greatest or the fastest runner or the greatest swimmer will use certain uh, various uh, uh, well means uh, to uh, enhance certain uh, their uh, bodily uh, growth and in particular uh, that of muscles now uh, this then obviously distorts the relationship uh, among the different competitors and this then has led to what Yes, there you go. Rules against doping. And um, then uh, in the fields of, uh, uh, well, like cricket, we have had in Asia just recently a very big scandal around match fixing. So you know, certain you know, players being influenced by others, by outsiders, you know, outsiders who have uh, you know, offered uh, you know, some you know, money uh, to intentionally you know, influence the results of uh, you know, cricket matches. And this then has resulted in what? This kind of a practice? Well, again, rules against uh, match fixing. Now, politicians across the globe have been caught taking bribes and have been caught taking kickbacks in contracts, in contracts that the government has given to, let's say, a certain company. And this then also has greatly tainted the image of politicians in general and certain 
you know, this then has resulted you know, in a call you know, for greater rules. Politicians certainly should uh, you know, adhere to eth- certain ethical you know, standards. The same thing goes in the world of uh, managers of big companies. Now, uh, just a few years back, I was a a bit surprised to hear that even the International Soccer Association, FIFA, has a so-called ethics committee, which carefully watches over the proceedings during international soccer matches. Now, what about certain physicians? What about nurses? Um, do such ethical guidelines exist or not? Have there been cases of abuse or not? Yes. Yes? Could you elaborate? Well, well there's plenty of... Well, they, I think all physicians take the Hippocratic Oath, but on top of that we have multiple guidelines set by various medical societies and then by state boards yes. um, to protect patients essentially and society at large. And I think there have been plenty of um, cases, for example, um, the guy who gave Michael Jackson a substance ah. that was not supposed to be used as a ah. drug and, and yes. one obvious example for recent times. Yes, okay, thank you very much. And so, um, and what about that Hippocratic Oath? What does it say? I'm asking out of curiosity because I really don't know exactly. I don't remember the, the original in full detail, but essentially that one undertakes to use one's learning and training for the good of the patient, that one will honor one's teachers who mm-hmm. be part of that training mm-hmm. um, and uphold the highest standards of integrity. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And then in the field of nursing, you know, a couple of years back, there was a huge scandal you know, that took place in you know, Austria, Europe, and so, you know, where apparently you know, some you know, nurses uh, had so, you know, nurses who were on you know, night duty, and so, you know, some of the patients in you know, the hospital who you know, you know, were you know, Bothering the nurses you know, by you know, ringing the bell and suddenly calling you know, calling the nurses to help them, where well, the nurses, some of the nurses, please not all, you know, decided suddenly to you know, well you know, uh, shorten you know, the lives of you know, those certain patients in a very cruel manner. And I don't want to go into the details of this. And there were many people involved, or you know, a number of you know, the patients. Uh, uh, passed away, and you know, that really created certain you know, um, an uprising in you know, Austria, and certain, you know, not just in Austria but in you know, many you know, European countries, and uh, you know, then uh, serious reflections about uh, the health system and certain you know, the role of the nurses, and certain you know, then supervision you know, came you know, came as a result of you know, this. Now. Um, and when it comes to the field of Vipassana meditation, where you know, engaging in such a noble endeavor, you know, purifying the mind, so one you know, would assume that ethics uh, you know, are you know, uh, well understood and that there's no need to protect those. And 
Have there been any cases of abuse? <laughs> <laughs> there have. Marcia is, well, you are laughing. <laughs> Marcia? Yes, there have. Such Not as? so many, but <laughs> one is too many. Been more, there's been more than one. More than one. And certain so, uh, cases where, you know, for instance, certain teachers would, or at least a, a teacher, I'm not referring to any particular case, please don't get me you know, wrong, um, where a teacher possibly you know, then you know, maybe started you know, some romantic relationship to a student while on retreat. And you know, then you know, the students uh, objecting against you know, this and uh, then raising this issue. So for a couple of years now, here in this very country, ethics committees have been formed. I know for sure for or at IMS, Inside Meditation Society. The Inside Meditation Society has set up or has an ethics committee with appointed certain people who are on the committee and certainly the function of this committee is to deal, to follow up and deal with certain issues that certainly concern a transgression of certain ethical guidelines in the relationship between teachers and certain students. Yes, right. Yeah, for the teachers, indeed. And on top of this also, I can only speak in IMS and not of IMS because I don't know the place. But at IMS, IMS, also the employees at certain the meditation center are protected according to state law against any kind of well abusive behavior so let's say if the manager at certain meditation center were to abuse his or her position of influence then this certainly would be uh, illegal and certainly uh, the, the, the uh, employee could sue uh, against uh, the uh, manager. So even in the world of uh, the Pasna, ethics certain committees uh, exist. Now, still on a uh, rather uh, general uh, level, Mm, ethics play a great role in uh, the uh, great religions or belief systems of uh, the world. So in Christianity, you know, the you know, set of ethical, the most fundamental set of ethical rules is known as? 
the Ten Commandments, there you go. And Satya, then when you think of uh, the various Christian uh, monastic orders, you know, do the monastics certainly uh, live uh, according to their uh, free will? They can do whatever they like and say whatever they like. Yes, Venerable? <laughs> Not at all. A lengthy catalogues of monastic rules exist for the Trappists and for the Benedictines and other groups. And then, who knows, in Judaism, what is the name of at least one text that concerns or that regulates the relationship between God and certain human beings? Who knows? The Talmud. Uh, Talmud is one. And then, to be more precise, the Mitzvah. The Torah. Anything else? The mitzvah, I've been uh, told. So the mitzvah contains a number of uh, regulations that uh, clarifies the relationship between God and human beings. And I. Pardon me? 637. Ah, and I was just about to say, I was told... It <laughs> but I don't think they follow all 600. No, 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 probably not. And I was told in Israel that Theravada monastics pride themselves of having to observe 227 monastic vows, which is considered already a great number. When I got to Israel, one lady told me that this is nothing your 227 vows. <laughs> <laughs> Just think of the 637 you know, rules that uh, believing you know, religious Jews uh, are uh, observing. And uh, including rules certain, such as certain, not certain, well, using any electricity on, uh, no, on Saturdays, which is certain your uh, Shabbat, the, uh, the day off. Now, in Islam, I've been told by one of our meditators in Lumbini, the, the texts that regulate ethical guidelines or ethical conduct are called Hadi and Satna Sunnah. But please don't ask me any further than this. <laughs> and Satna Lin, in Hinduism, yes, certain, certain rules are there or certain um, precepts are there you know, that are supposed to be somewhat similar to you know, the Buddhist uh, um, you know, precepts, but um, well, you know, the text for this I don't, uh, the exact text uh, I'm not too you know, sure. Does any one of you know? Those of you who have studied Hinduism before? No? Okay. Um, now, in Buddhism, the relevant term is your sila, and which, as we've said, means virtue, morality, or ethical conduct.
already yesterday Marcin heard talk on some Nuega asked some very fundamental questions, namely questions about the meaning of life and so to this list of different questions one might ask the following question why are we here? And so, so why, were, why are we here at Satna, this Satna retreat meditating? We might as well use our time in different ways, and so we might as well go and, and Satna, um, go on a vacation, maybe to sunny Florida or other, maybe some interesting place in Central America or wherever you like. You know, I assume you know, that certainly some of you, know, you are you know, here that may be just out of curiosity, you know, trying to you know, figure out certain you know, or trying to learn what this certain you know, style of pasta meditation is all about. Maybe you've have heard already much about it, but you've never practiced it, or. Simply, you might be here because you want more happiness in the present life. Or, for those who have done already some amount of meditation practice, you may have set your sights on Nibbana and so you know already what you're going for. Now, whatever the reason might be, be you then engage in you might certainly engage in outside of this retreat in maybe samatha meditation or during this retreat in the pasna meditation now the difference or the difference between you know, samatha meditation calm you know, meditation or serenity meditation and you know, insight meditation is you know, that certainly in samatha meditation usually we use uh, you know, just one single conceptual object such as certainly maybe an idea you know, like a quality of virtue of the buddha of the dhamma the Sangha, or you know, you know, maybe you know, reflecting on you know, generosity, etc. Or it could also you know, be an idea such as you know, loving kindness, so radiating loving kindness you know, to, you know, to oneself and you know, to others. Now, as said, it's a conceptual object and not necessarily an ultimate, certain, an object of ultimate certain reality. And one stays in samatha meditation with this one uh, object uh, uh, throughout. Now, this satna samatha meditation uh, then uh, usually uh, leads to which uh, result? Uh, to the jhanas, yes, indeed. So, uh, levels of uh, deep absorption. Now, on the other hand, 
when it comes to short certain definition of certain vipassana or insight, certain meditation, then we do not use just one single conceptual object, but rather we focus our attention on whatever most predominant object occurs in the body or in the mind. So we're not creating anything, but rather we just observe whatever observant know, whatever predominant object comes up, starting with the rising and falling movement of the abdomen, and then taking it from there. Now, the main feature in insight meditation is what? Is the development of what? Why do we practice insight meditation? To see the three signs. To see the three signs. You know, the signs or characteristics of, you know, of Dukkha and Anatta, yes. You know, so, of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and non self. And so, you know, this then involves what? You don't, you don't just see Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta like this. Wisdom. There you go. So, and to you know, develop you know, wisdom, and as our wisdom unfolds, then you know, you know, after you know, some days of intensive practice, those certain three universal characteristics certainly come up. And later on, also other you know, forms of understanding you know, will be gained. Now, so in you know, insight meditation, you know, or we do you know, insight meditation, and as a result of you know, this sudden you know, intuitive wisdom arises. And sudden you know, then, does this mean there's no concentration arising? Does it mean this? Uh, not. Not at all. Intuitive wisdom you know, does certainly require what? It requires at least some degree of concentration. And later on in the practice, even high degrees of footing concentration. So then when we compare those, or when we look at these two fundamental forms of footing meditation, we find that both have one thing in common, namely concentration. Now, if we... Um, are interested you know, to you know, develop or, or you know, whether you know, we you know, practice samatha or you know, you know, we practice insight. In both cases, concentration will be you know, necessary, and so we will have a certain interest in the development of fattening concentration. Now, how do you develop your concentration? What would you do? Let's say your concentration at first is still weak, and so you want to strengthen it. Hold it uh, on one thing for some time. You hold it on one object for some time, yes, indeed. And certain, and certain important in this is that you just practice it as certain, much as certain possible. And, so, and then another you know, way of ensuring you know, the development of concentration would be what? Mindfulness, Mindfulness that might help to some extent. Continuity of practice? Continuity of practice, yes. Yeah. Ah, here comes the answer. <laughs> here comes the answer, namely Sina. Now, why are you saying this? Why are you saying this? 
Why is Sila so important? <laughs> you read a book. So then do you remember what the book said? To allow the mind to settle because unethical conduct will cause these things to, to surface at some point and disturb concentration. And disturb concentration. There you go. So unethical conduct will have a certain impact on the mind. So if we are, let's say, on a retreat, and we transgress in one way or another, and to be more specific, let's say, in the evening there's no third meal, and we say, well, I can't take this sensation of hunger anymore, and the door to the kitchen is open, and in the kitchen there's a fridge, maybe even two, and suddenly then one decides, and Surya is fast asleep in her room, and so there's nobody to watch, and then we say, okay, I will help myself to whatever leftover food there is in the fridge. So one proceeds and one then alleviates the sensation of hunger, but then the next day come the consequences. And the consequences come in the form of an agitated mind. And certainly one might certainly then start worrying. Well, sooner or later we'll find out that half of the leftovers are missing. <laughs> and then you know, these certain questions come, who did it? And certainly then, you know, we'll, and then we'll have to start an investigation. <laughs> We've had this in Nobini many times. <laughs> So, uh, any, anyways, and so, you know, the meditator on retreat who helped himself to you know, some you know, food may gradually get, you know, or may gradually feel, you know, start feeling uncomfortable. Sooner or later, they'll find out what I did. And so, this will interfere with the development of concentration. So, the mind gets agitated, it is no longer pure and calm. So, this in itself may already be a very strong reason for a meditator on retreat. Whether the person is practicing samatha or inside vipassana, it doesn't matter. In both cases, one would certainly be interested to, if one wants to develop concentration, to observe a certain ethical code of conduct. Now, let us, uh, and uh, if we approach this topic of sila in uh, this way, uh, then you know, the term uh, sila or morality or virtue uh, will sound less heavy uh, than usual. And so there's a certain, uh, uh, a certain justification uh, for it. So then, uh, why do we take uh, the precepts in uh, particular? Well, we can um, 
reflects in the following way that sila very much helps to purify our physical as well as verbal conduct and then indirectly it might be seen also as a way to purify the mind or to at least ensure pure mental states. Now, another way of looking at it is that being on retreat and observing the precepts and on top of this being mindful and with this ensuring that the mind is pure will lead to a great deal of purity and maybe even um, of a degree of purity that by far excels the purity of mind that you know from your ordinary life. And so please you know, consider or, or you know, take the purity that arises in the course of your meditation practice as something very special, very you know, unusual, and something that certainly is worth um, you know, well you know, preserving and you know, cherishing. Yes. When I first got here and I saw my beautiful big bed in the room that was so comfortable. I didn't know how I could take the eighth precept in all honesty, because I'm sure the Buddha would have considered it a Mahasayana. Maybe. So I'll be taking seven, because I thought, well, I could sleep on the floor, but then if I don't get good sleep, I won't meditate well. So I mean, we're in a hotel, so all our beds are comfortable. Can we really take the eight precepts? This is certainly... You're the second person to, to mention this. I know. Some... This might certainly might uh, there uh, you, you might have a good point there. And, uh, yes, Alan. Doesn't the eighth precept really mean not necessarily high and lofty beds, but those beds that are given status so that people believe themselves better than others, mm-hmm. have different status and different uh, relationships to other people? It's not the height of them, but the relationship to our ownership of it. It's attitudinal. It comes up every retreat in this place. Something comes up every retreat. Uh, well, mm, if, uh, to pick up what Marcia is saying, mm, if uh, we sleep in these uh, the high beds and suddenly then you know, end up all you know, proud and conceited, thinking, ah, oh, what an important person I am, then indeed there is certainly uh, a problem with uh, sleeping in such high uh, luxurious beds. And the other way that we've dealt with it, because I say it comes up every time, uh, is it's what's offered. Mm-hmm. Mm. So we take what's offered, and we take it with humility, and we use what's offered as because it's offered, that's what's offered. Uh, it's attitudinal. I mean, you can have... That's a big... Um, attitude is a big piece of zero. Uh, right. In the tradition, though, isn't there a specific measurement? Uh, In the Winnie, there is. (laughs) There is. (laughs) There is. Uh. (laughs) Well, the the Winnie is for the monastics.
no, no, maybe then you and I would not then we should sleep on the floor. <laughs> so no to understand certain better you know, the meaning of fitness some of the precepts not all of the precepts the eight precepts we won't have the time for it well if fitness, we you know, think of fitness, the uh, first fitness, precept namely uh, that of fitness, not fitness, taking life obviously if fitness, a person has fitness, taken the life of another human being and then you know, goes on to meditate this person most likely will have a really hard time and a lot of bad conscience coming up in the mind now this doesn't mean that it's not not, not, not impossible to you know, quiet or to you know, calm down that certain disquietude, but so at least it will be you know, difficult. Now, on you know, retreat, especially in you know, Asia, you know, where you know, there's no shortage of mosquitoes, it may happen again and again that let's say you know, meditators sue and this is I hope none of you, you know no, there's no sue here right and uh, so you know, meditators you know, sue is certainly uh, sitting in her you know, you know, under her mosquito net in the meditation hall and certainly then unfortunately there is a mosquito you know, buzzing around her head and at first, Tetanus Su is just mindful of it as it labels it as hearing, hearing, or buzzing, buzzing. But then, gradually, after a while, it gets too much and she gets pretty agitated. And suddenly, then she squishes that or swats that mosquito. Now, she thinks nothing will happen. I have every right certainly to get rid of this mosquito. And certainly this is my mosquito net and not so there's no reason that I should share it with this mosquito. However, um, maybe a few hours certain, um, later, when sitting again in meditation, at least a little bit of disquiet comes up and so a little bit of uh, agitation uh, comes up in uh, the mind and suddenly uh, then uh, this uh, will surely weaken her uh, concentration now so observing yeah, this Satna first Satna precept of uh, not taking life and Satna of uh, not taking human life, also not taking the life of uh, mosquitoes and ants and uh, um, flies, etc. And I have to add Satna the, the word intentionally, deliberately. Yeah, so yeah, this Satna then uh, will help us yeah, to maintain yeah, the mind in an, a calm and not agitated certain state and in turn you know, this will help to develop concentration now 
Not touching on you know, the second certain precept, let us explore you know, the third. The third certain precept is certain you know, that a third among the five you know, is certain you know, that of uh, uh, not in, indulging in unlawful you know, sexual relations. So, in other words, certain you know, adultery to you know, stay away from adultery. Now. The Buddha's certain teachings in this certain regard, Buddha's teachings on celibacy, should certain not be mistaken or misunderstood as making a value judgment about certain sex, and but rather should be understood as a way of helping to quiet certain the mind. Now, to give you an example here, and obviously it is an example made up from imagination. So, in our story, we have meditator Bob, who is young and the prime of his health, who is on retreat, and it so happens that his girlfriend is also on retreat, and he's heard about the precepts, but he couldn't be bothered. And so he says, what the heck with this third priesthood? It's not for me. And then secretly he sleeps with his girlfriend every night during the retreat, at least during the first few days of the retreat. And then in doing so, he thinks, well, it will help my practice because it really helps me to feel happy and I have no tension. <laughs> now, even though he is doing it under those assumptions, yet he notices that he's progressing rather slowly in his meditation. And then during the daytime, during the sitting sessions, he sits there with eyes closed and daydreaming about his girlfriend. And she does just the same thing. She dreams about him. And the meditation is so difficult for both of them. And so they basically create more mental waves and their minds are not quiet at all. Their minds are full of lust and longing and counting the hours in between. Now, you can imagine yeah, that certainly for yeah, both of them yeah, it will be very easy to develop concentration or difficult very difficult indeed. And certainly so this precept of this third precept of not certain engaging in sexual unlawful sexual relations and certainly then on an intensive retreat like this the third out of the eight precepts says to refrain from all sexual activities. Well, 
you know, these certain precepts very much uh, help you know, to maintain purity of the mind. It, you know, they help uh, to you know, help the meditator to remain totally you know, focused. Now, in these certain ways, we then come to understand that not observing a precept really interferes with our meditation practice, and observing the respective precepts helps our practice. Now, there is also the fourth precept of or concerning right speech, and this precept too may be very important while on retreat, but also outside of an intensive retreat. Now. You might object and say, well, on retreat, we're supposed to spend the day in silence, and we're not talking much except for the interviews, so why bother with right speech? It's automatically already observed. Well, not necessarily. While on a retreat, especially inside meditation retreat, we develop mindfulness, and mindfulness includes mindfulness of intentions to say this or that. And even if we don't say you know, things you know, on a retreat, yet uh, um, we might certainly say them outside of a retreat. So, you know, working with certain uh, right speech and intentions you know, to say you know, one thing or another might be uh, very uh, helpful. Now, as Sutton mentioned already at Sutton, during the opening talk on Sunday, right speech, Samma Waja, covers four aspects. So, not only to refrain from false speech, from lying, but also it covers to refrain from what else? Yes, harsh speech is one, and what else? Malicious speech. Malicious speech, there you go. And idle chatter. And idle chatter and, uh, and backbiting, backbiting, slandering. So malicious speech comes under backbiting or not? Yeah? yeah. Okay. So then we can say you know, slandering, backbiting, malicious speech is number two, and harsh, rough speech is number three, and idle chatter is number four. Now, just a few main points with regard certainly to each one of those, and I'll try to keep it as short as possible. Now. In the case of absence from or abstaining from false speech, musawada viramni sikavanam samadhi yami, well, the determinative factor behind the transgression is the intention to deceive. If one speaks, 
speaks something false, believing it to be not true, there is no breach of precept. Now, uh, a lie can uh, be uh, said out of greed, out of hatred, out of delusion. So, out of greed, a lie aimed at gaining some personal advantage for oneself or close friends would be such a case. Now, a malicious lie intended to hurt or damage others then would be a case of a lie spoken out of hatred. And certainly then, a lie spoken out of delusion as a motive would certainly then manifest as an irrational lie, compulsive lie, or interesting exaggeration. So, one well, overstates the case just to gain others' attention, or lying for the sake of a joke. Now, the Buddha's reasons against lying are the following. Lying is disruptive to social cohesion. Lies tend to proliferate. And such lying, once one feels compelled to lie again, to defend one's certain credibility. And in the German language, there is a saying that lies, and I'm translating it, lies have short legs. So <laughs> you won't get very far sooner. Is it the same thing exists in the English language? No. And <laughs> so. And, uh, you know, you, one speaks a lie, and so one thinks one gets away with it, but sooner or later, uh, it gets revealed. <coughs> so, as we have said already on Sunday, rather than engaging in uh, telling uh, a lie, we should adhere to the opposite certain qualities, namely that of certain truth or truthfulness, and certain then misspeak what is certain true, what is in accordance certain with certain facts. Now, the second form of Fatna wrongful speech is Satna that of uh, uh, slanderous speech. In the Pani scriptural language known as Bisunaya Vajaya Veramani Sikabadam Samadhiyami. So, the the second term for this is backbiting, and the term is actually very nice. So behind the back of another person, in his or her absence, you are saying nasty, or one is saying nasty things. Now, obviously, this is easy to do, but the results of such backbiting or slanderous speech can be very serious. Now, slanderous speech is intended to create enmity, division, to alienate one person from another or one group from another. 
And the motive behind slanderous speech is generally aversion, resentment of a rival's success or virtues, yet the intention to tear down others by verbal denigrations. And this also oftentimes, I'm not saying in all cases, but uh, in, at least in some cases, happens in the context of, well, denigrating another person and praising oneself. And supporting another person down, and then talking highly of oneself. Other motives might be a cruel intention of causing hurt to others, an evil desire to win affection for oneself, and perverse delight in seeing friends suddenly divided. Now, slanderous speech is one of the most serious moral transgressions. And since it is based or rooted in hatred, dosa, and any act based in hatred will be an act of akusalakama, so an unwholesome act, and there will be unwholesome karmic results to this. And if one um, does this uh, intentionally, so one slanders deliberately, then, and if the statement is on top of this wrong, then the unwholesome results are going to be even greater. Now, the opposite of Fertner slanderous speech is speech that promotes friendship and harmony and a form of speech that originates from loving-kindness, metta and karuna, which Shatner then wins the trust and affection of others. Now, if one makes it a point to abstain from slander, then over time one will gain a retinue of friends who can never be turned against one by slanderous words of others. Now, just an interesting aspect in the context of conflict resol resolution and peace building, the following has been observed. A conflict usually starts because two people or two groups of people just don't want the same thing. So there is a conflict because of a certain issue. Now, if one, if the two parties involved do not manage to reconcile things at this very first level, then things will very soon get worse, and then and then a certain well personification takes place, and then the conflict is no longer about the issue, about the difference of opinion, um, opinion or whatever. But rather, it's about the personalities involved. And so, then, because you have such and such a personality, this conflict is happening. Now, if both parties don't manage to control things at this level, then things will get what? Worse or better? 
obviously worse. And certainly then, then what might happen is that the communication start rather than talking to one another directly, communication breaks down, and suddenly then the backbiting starts. And then, rather than talking to another person directly and trying to patch up or explain why one did certain so and so, then one starts talking behind the back of another person. So it is at this point that the slandering comes comes in. And that is already, in terms of conflict, or the escalation of a conflict, is already a pretty serious level, and one better make a big effort to control it, to reverse this development. Also, if things don't get any better, then easily Maybe, sorry, I just uh, forgot one thing. Uh, Before the backbiting starts, usually mm, something else uh, happens, namely groups form. So one then looks for people of the same opinion. And so so groupism takes place, and then the communication uh, breaks uh, down. Sorry, that's uh, uh, more accurate like this. Now, the third form of harsh, of wrongful speech is, is harsh speech in the Pali language known as Farusiya Vajaya Veramni Sikabaram Samadhyami. And so this is speech uttered in anger intended to cause the hearer pain. And certain different forms of harsh speech could be distinguished, such as abusive speech, scolding, reminding, reproving another angrily with bitter words, or it could come in the form of an insult, hurting another by ascribing to him or her some offensive quality which detracts from his or her dignity. And basically an insult is just a way of trying to weaken the other person's ego or sense of the ego. So the other person has a certain perception of himself or herself of you know what a wonderful person one is and so if one denigrates another or if one insults another person by ascribing some uh, wrongful quality to this other person, well, then this does not coincide with one's own perception of oneself, and thus the ego is attacked, and then often, at times, people uh, lash back. 
Now, another form of harsh speech would be sarcasm, speaking to someone in a way which lauds the person, but with a tone or a twist of certain phrasing, then certainly the ironic intent becomes clear and causes pain. The main root for this is aversion, mostly impulsively without deliberation, and as a result of this, the karmic consequence will be somewhat less severe than in the case of slandering or backbiting. Now, if you happen to be on the receiving end of harsh speech, then how would it be best to tackle this? By hurling harsh speech back? Yes, no? So, then what we do? what do we do? Christianity, they turn the other cheek. Oh. <laughs> well, in Buddhism, it's simply patience. And suddenly, then, you know, for a meditator, all you need to do is you just label as hearing, hearing, hearing. <laughs> Uh, no, and it's just an, uh, it's just some sound uh, you know, that comes and goes, and uh, no need you know, to take it too uh, seriously. No. In the case of the fourth and last form of wrongful speech, we have idle chatter, and so ideally one avoids idle chatter, one abstains from it, one speaks at the right time in accordance with facts, speaks what is useful, speaks of the Dhamma and the discipline, one's when speech is like a treasure uttered at the right moment, accompanied by reason, moderate and full of sense. Just to highlight one you know, aspect here, and of course there could be you know, much more said about you know, the other points. So one speaks at the right time. Let's say, if you have something important to communicate to your spouse or you know, friend or you know, you know, fellow you know, worker, whoever it might you know, be, if you know, the other person is, uh, let's say, you know, pretty agitated and angry, then would it be, and very busy, would it be you know, a proper time to you know, talk about this very important issue? Obviously not. So the timing plays a, a tremendous certain role. So if you catch another person when he or she is angry, and you tell the person something that is really important to you, and might but also might certainly concern the other person, then you're bound to get a bad result or bad response. 
So meditation practice very much helps us to understand when we are angry ourselves and suddenly then to understand how we feel in that situation, how we act in a situation like this and having understood this for ourselves, we then also are in a much better position to see when other people are uh, angry or let's say very uptight etc. And then we can say okay, this might not be the perfect moment to bring up some serious matter. Now, idle chatter is pointless talk, speech that lacks purpose and depth, speech that communicates nothing of value and only stirs up defilements in one's own mind and the mind of others. Now, you might object when it comes to lay people. They cannot be like the monastics talking about Dhamma all the time. And so there's certain you know, social norms that need to be observed. And so when you are with family or friends, you might need to engage in polite conversation or, or um, similar things. And so that is okay and not necessarily seen as a form of idle chatter. Now, Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi, in the context of right speech, and in particular idle chatter, has pointed out that modern mass media well, bombard us with a huge amount of useless information and information that might as well be seen as idle chatter, as information that is not absolutely necessary, at least not in the context of meditative practice. And so, obviously, mass media, they are reporting news and about latest events and whatnot, and so on a certain level, there's a meaning to this, but when it comes to our spiritual life, all of this might not be all that necessary and helpful. And this bombardment with information may actually take us away from the meditation practice and it will cause distraction in the mind. And hence, it is good to refrain from it. And as a result of this, on a retreat, as retreatants, we refrain from using those mass media. And after retreat, obviously, it's a different matter. Now, by abstaining from the four forms of unwholesome speech, we then essentially engage in right speech. By restraining oneself from unwholesome speech, one establishes the practice of right speech. 
And certainly with this, by refraining from unwholesome speech, one engages in speech that is truthful, so the opposite of lying, that is gentle and certainly beneficial and promotes certain harmony. And in the presence of mindfulness from moment to moment, when we are seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and certain thinking, unwholesome mental states, mental defilements, cannot arise in the stream of consciousness. And as a result of this, we are not tempted to utter unwholesome words of wrong speech. Now, Venerable Dr. Rewatat Dhamma has uh, an interesting uh, point to offer in his book, The First uh, Discourse. Namely, he says that um, the attainment, the the realization of the path of stream entry dispels false speech or telling lies. Now, when it comes to the realization of the path, the noble path of a non-returner, so anagami maga, this dispels the two forms of wrongful speech, namely slandering and abusive language. And in the case of frivolous talk and useless satna chatter, well, this takes you know, the attainment of arahata magga, uh, magga and pana. So, um, in order to deal and certain to deal with and put away with all four forms of you know, wrongful speech, we actually have to you know, practice up to a very high level. So. If the mind is impure, one is likely to engage in uh, wrongful speech. If the mind is pure, one is likely to speak uh, what is correct. Let me conclude today's Satna Dhamma talk on uh, sila, on uh, virtue and ethical conduct, uh, by uh, wishing may uh, this may you see uh, the deeper uh, meaning of Satna sila may you embrace it as much as certainly possible and certainly then may your mindfulness practice help you to perfect virtue more and certainly more and eventually may all of us have perfect virtue where we neither transgress physically nor verbally nor mentally and this is it for now Questions? <laughs> yes, uh, that's here.
So, Jim. If you, you know, think of the precepts in terms of body, speech, and mind, at the level of body and speech, uh, the, the precepts are, frankly, you know, pedestrian and ordinary. Uh, it's where they gain nobility and virtue uh, is at the level of the mind. And if there's any truth to the notion that there's a kind of causal sequence that begins with the intention in the mind before it, you know, registers in the material world, mm -hmm. then it's the practice of the precepts at the level of the mind that is the most essential practice, it seems to me. Mm -hmm. And during meditative practice, of course we're not engaged in anything. We're not harming living beings, we're not going out hurting anyone, we're not lying, we're not, there's no sexual misconduct. It's all taking place within the mind, what's taking place. And, and it's the practice of the precepts there that is, it seems to me, essential. But we never talk about that. We always talk about it in terms of like, you know, watching less TV. Or stuff like that. It's very pedestrian. Well, one definition of Fertner virtue is indeed a mode of Fertner keeping, what was it, a mode of keeping the mind and of Fertner particular keeping the mind and intentions. Mm -hmm. So we choose, we choose to uh, keep the mind mm, so that it's you know, virtuous rather than non-virtuous. It's purity of the mind that we're seeking, and uh, it seems to me. And, uh, and so uh, that was mentioned uh, earlier on, uh, in, in the context of uh, uh, wanting to do, uh, develop concentration. Uh, no, but you know, what you're saying, you're pointing at certain important aspect. Uh, no. Yes. Um, the fifth precept, I guess, is one a lot of Buddhists wonder about and would like to interpret more laxly. Uh, yes, indeed. What, what do you feel? I mean, obviously, taking something to get intoxicated is clearly not in keeping with the precept. But in social occasions, giving a toast in someone's wedding. What, is it a hard and fast rule? Should we interpret it as a hard and fast rule and refrain from any alcohol touching objects? Uh, well, our teacher in Burma, he's pretty clear cut about this, and he says, in order to maintain the precepts, one needs courage. And it's uh, under circumstances you know, certain you're you know, describing, you know, let's say, you know, a wedding you know, party where you offered, uh, you know, let's say, some uh, wine or whatnot, you know, to have the courage to say, sorry, I'd rather go for a glass of orange juice. I uh, don't know. People might so, you know, get slightly offended by this, but in the end, you know, the clarity of your mind is more important. I uh, know. And uh, at least uh, for those who Fatna practice to you know, quite certain some extent and who value you know, the purity of the mind, they will not want to compromise with this anymore. Uh, no, not even for some you know, a social you know, reason. Uh, 
and uh, I know it's uh, mm, it's a frequent occasion for, uh, well, big discussions at the family dinner table or so, especially in countries like France or Italy or Belgium where there's a habit of people of drinking wine together with the main meal. Should at least try to, and even if one doesn't convince one's family, at least for oneself, one doesn't drink the alcohol. Yes, Marcia. What what happens if if our mindfulness gets really strong and clear and pervasive? Is that for instance, you know, a half a glass of beer or one glass of wine, you you see how it affects the mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, three sips of wine, I mean, you really can uh, perceive what what it does to the mind. Mm-hmm. And if you really uh, appreciate the clarity of mind, you don't want it. Right, right. And the Venerable Pandita is pointing out still one more aspect. He says, if one were to break that fifth precept and just drink a sip of alcohol, or, or let's say, or maybe a lot, it doesn't matter. And with this, there is a likelihood that one is also going to transgress the other four presets, at least one or the other. So let's say, if we take some young young adult who gets drunk at a party, the person is likely to break the fourth precept of wrongful speech. No, and we'll you know, just talk a, a, a lot of you know, nonsense. And, and you know, when uh, the one is uh, somewhat uh, tipsy, you know, then um, one might certainly you know, one might come you know, come up with all sorts of ideas that, under normal circumstances, you know, would not you know, arise in the mind and one would, you know, wouldn't act on them. I know, as as you will surely note, no, no, alcohol under the influence of alcohol, people do things that normally they wouldn't do. I know it breaks certain you know, certain barriers you know, that are uh, built in you know, into the mind. I know. I think there's a very natural process that happens with practice uh, as it goes deeper and deeper in terms of. The experience of the purity of the mind and the appreciation of it and understanding how to keep it and not mm-hmm. to transgress it. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, we make decisions out of uh, a, more, a more cerebral and more intellectual understanding, of course, along the way, but there's really a very natural process that happens mm-hmm. uh, where we just let go of that stuff. We just, mm-hmm. Because of the experience that we have when we're when without it, yeah, and as right. your mindfulness increases, I guess you can pick up you much you quicker. Yeah, sure. you, yeah. you see the effects, so you yeah. can just let right. it go. And so it's right. a very organic and natural yeah. process right. that occurs. Yeah. Indeed, and so uh, what Marcia is saying is certainly is very good. It's basically the Dhamma at first is just a norm. No, the, the Dhamma says, please, you know, conduct yourself, yourselves in such and such a way. Okay, and you know, at first one might not necessarily understand why one you know, should behave in such ways, but then you know, through 
And through the practice, as Mahatma Marcia has outlined, that one, that then gradually comes to understand for oneself, one sees for oneself, and then it becomes a verified experience. And it's not just because the Buddha said so and so, but rather, you know, the, you know, one's personal experience is there. And yet another aspect is, you see, people happily take a glass of wine or champagne or whatnot because they think it makes them more happy and then they'll be more joyous and more creative in engaging with others. But when you meditate, you realize you don't need that. There is the happiness within. And that happiness is not you know, dependent on some external you know, uh, you know, intoxicating substance. <laughs> I don't know. Why, you know, if there's already within some contentment and happiness, why, you know, you know, why then <laughs> take uh, a glass of wine? I don't know. It becomes superfluous. I don't know. There is an additional layer of difficulty here, so. um, Such as? Well, I have I, have not drunk uh, alcohol now for four years, uh, you know, since my first retreat with you. And uh, um, But we still have dinner parties, and we serve wine at the dinner parties. Yeah. I sit there with a glass of pomegranate juice, because it looks like that. Yeah, yeah, so. And that way everybody feels that uh, I'm a replace. Yeah. But I'm serving wine to the guests. Now, you know, I'm, I'm up against a choice. Do I tell them, well, for tonight, fellas, let's take the vows. <laughs> or, or do I drop my friends? Because uh, yeah. they're, they're not teetotal. Uh, well, that's a, that's a neat approach. <laughs> you know. So, yeah, sure. And you see, for barkeepers, it's the same thing. If a barkeeper were to drink you know, alcohol with every invitation that comes from the, you know, from the guests, or for hotel owners, it's the same thing. You know, they'd be dead by the end of the, you know, the evening. I know. You can't possibly drink all that much. I know, and so it's common practice apparently, at least among some you know, barkeepers, to you know, instead of uh, drinking, you know, you know, straightforward alcohol, you know, to drink you know, something that looks like it. Yes. I know, non non-alcoholic uh, beverage. I had my seventieth birthday party in December here. Oh, what did you do? And I. Don't drink at all, and I did not want to serve alcohol. So it was. I made it clear on the invitation. It was a big dinner party with 40 people, many of whom liked to drink some, and some maybe a little more, and some maybe a little more. But I did not. I said there is no alcohol served. Surya cooked a fabulous meal, and and I also didn't say BYO, bring your own. <laughs> but I didn't say didn't I did not say don't bring your own. And I had one cousin and another one or two people who brought some alcohol and they put it on a table in the back and that was their business. They they did bring it. I kind of knew one of them would. Mm-hmm. I kind of hoped he wouldn't, but I knew he would. And so that was that. I mean I in, for me, and maybe you can't do that at dinner party, BYO, you know, bring you along, you don't feel comfortable with that, but uh, for, for this event, uh, 
it was clear to me I didn't want to serve alcohol, and mm -hmm. I, 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 if someone wanted to bring their own, that, that's their business, but it, I wasn't going to provide it. Uh, right. And, um, and uh, nobody was upset, nobody no. was hurt, nobody was judgmental. No, no. It was perfectly okay. No, but I mean, I carry you around on my shoulder, side down, <laughs> and, and pouring the wine. I'm hearing you say, well, if it's no good for you, why is it good for them? And so... Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, the, your friends up there will be adults, and so they will have to decide for themselves. Yeah, uh, no. It's their choice. Uh, no. Yes, Alan? Um, could it be... Uh, Characterized that, that because these are training precepts, that uh, every step along the way while we experiment with any and all, as well as mindfulness and concentration, that at varying degrees our training will become congruent with that training. And at certain levels, uh, you know, like with tennis or anything else, at certain levels we gain deeper understanding, appreciation, and it comes naturally. Yeah. Not rather than yeah, conflict. Yeah. And it's yeah. always right. going to be a conflict yeah. until we're our aunts. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And that's, that's exactly what uh, Marcia pointed out early on. It's a gradual process of uh, integration. And then, you know, with the precepts, it's not that they're forced on us anymore, or we can keep them because someone tells us to, but rather you know, this happens from within, and there's no more motivation to you know, do otherwise. No, there's a huge difference there. I know. What, what other, you mentioned the false speech with the, the different stages. Sotapatimaga. Uh, what about the other precepts? With the different stages, is there a clear gradation or...? No, yes, uh, well, no. Oh, if it's, uh, no, for instance, killing, taking life, uh, if that takes place out of anger, uh, then that uh, would uh, go uh, with uh, the attainment of anagamihood. Uh, no. So it will depend on you know, the you know, predominant mental states that are prevalent at, uh, uh, at the time of transgression. Uh, no. okay. Yes, Venera? Back to the talk. Intoxicants. Oh, intoxicants. Yeah. Uh, can you please uh, clarify a muddy area? What do you call an intoxicant? Does nicotine count? Does caffeine count? Does betel nut count? Um, or is it just alcohol and, and drugs that very clearly have a strong mental effect? Is there a... Do the commentaries or sub-commentaries say anything about this? Or oh. do you know any kind of... Anything that Sayadaji might have said? Um, well... Mm, Definitely, you know, to avoid certain alcohol and uh, in terms of drugs, it's not just you know, ordinary drugs, but also designer drugs, or modern uh, modern drugs. And uh, you know, then, you know, Sianoji is not a friend of betel nuts whatsoever. And uh, um, so, you know, you know, the monastics, at least in his monasteries, are not allowed to you know, you know, chew any betel. And, uh, and uh, with the lay supporters, if they do, he you know, strongly discourages them you know, from doing so. 
I know. And so it seems that um, during Beatle, yes, uh, they have some, um, well, enlivening uh, uh, function to it or, or effect on, on the mind. And so, so you know, that would not, uh, no, uh, would, be, would not be okay. And with certain uh, smoking cigarettes, nicotine, mm, in Burma there's one uh, sect, monastic sect, that does allow you know, the monastics to uh, smoke, but this is just one sect, and uh, the Shwejin uh, Nikaya uh, does, uh, does not approve of this, and in the Shwejin Nikaya there's no, no, no smoking allowed whatsoever. And uh, in terms of coffee, one could, uh, one <laughs> definitely coffee and uh, caffeine and teine stimulate the mind. There's no no, no doubt about this. Um, well, well, no, the in the Mahasi tradition, there's no drinking of coffee and certain black tea after 12 o'clock noon. And because the Mahasi Sadhu sees it, uh, he explains it as a, a form of solid food, which is somewhat difficult to understand, but uh, for sure. <laughs> you are not going to, you're not going to eat your coffee. Uh, Right, and then there's and it has a uh, very uh, strong effect, actually. I uh, know. Uh, um, as another, so no, no coffee, no tea after twelve o'clock noon, which is a you know, rather strict interpretation of you know, the Wikala uh, Bojina precept. And so then, apart you know, from this, just you know, if we go by our own experiences with coffee and tea, once one knows how much coffee and tea can stimulate the mind and the impact on our own meditation practice, especially when the meditation gets really refined, the mind also gets very refined, then naturally we will want to abstain from those. No, maybe on occasion, no, 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 a cup of coffee in the morning, but that's uh, no, that's about it. But that's you know this is it's it's up to the individual, of course. No, and I don't. Um, I'm not an expert in terms of commentaries and sub-commentaries, so I don't know what uh, what is uh, mentioned there. So, as yogis on retreat, it doesn't constitute an infraction to have tea in the morning or something like that. No, usually not. If it's certain uh, within the allowable period of time, and, uh, but uh, as certain uh, you will know, in some you know, monasteries like in Thailand, um, drinking coffee in the afternoon is okay, and uh, uh, eating chocolate is also okay. So you know, there are different interpretations there of the same you know, the same rule. And, uh, not 
you know, there's you know, there are differences, you know, differences in in terms of uh, oh, you know, the strictness and you know, you know, how far do you, does one want to go in uh, uh, applying these uh, you know, these uh, you know, precepts and precepts or monastic vows. And, uh, Well, in the end, in the end, I guess our diet then consists only of rice and uh, drinking water and some vegetables, and that's it. <laughs> okay, maybe not, not this much for tonight. And uh, Barcia, you're going to give the next talk tomorrow? Yes? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.